What is human attention for? Why do we have it? Even prior to the invasion, we lived inside the attention economy. This world daily offers us a new feast of multimedia. New video games every month, new Hollywood releases every week, new YouTube videos every minute, new social media updates every second, and a fresh set of Instagram images with every pull down to refresh gesture, right? We know that, we know that. TikTok videos without end. That's the world we live in now. So here we are this morning celebrating the centrality of God's word, celebrating the ear, we're celebrating the ear, in the golden age of the digital image, in the golden age of the eye. An age that has been fittingly called the age of the spectacle. So what is a spectacle? Let's just define this for a few minutes. What is a spectacle? A spectacle is a moment of time of varying length in which a collective gaze is fixed on some specific image or video or event. Okay, a spectacle is something that captures human attention. An instant when our eyes and our brains focus and fixate on something projected at us. It can be a tragic and haunting thing like war footage. Uh, in an outraged society like ours, spectacles are often controversies. Right? The latest scandal in sports, entertainment, or politics. It can be propaganda. It can be anti-propaganda. But controversy in any form makes for a captivating spectacle that will grab millions of eyes. And as our media gets faster and faster, it becomes more and more fragmented. Now the most minuscule public slip of the tongue or passive aggressive celebrity comment or incendiary sentence from the lips of our president or videos of a comedian getting slapped on stage by an actor, all of those things become a massive spectacle, right? They just become this viral phenomenon that everyone's got to see. More collectively, spectacles take the form of public protests and riots that can be framed for the camera. So a spectacle is some moment captured and published to hold a collective gaze for a particular purpose. Spectacles can be brilliant photographs, uh, an eye-catching billboard, a creative animation, a sexualized advertisement for deodorant can be a spectacle, a witty commercial for fast food can be a spectacle, or a new music video can be a spectacle. Spectacles can be mind-blowing digital landscapes in a video game or a celebrated network TV show that you want to binge, a new season on Netflix, a blockbuster movie, a horror film, even down to a sports clip of a, a, an athlete's injury or glory, some feat that they pulled off. All of that becomes a spectacle. And as you know, our culture is awash in these spectacles. They're everywhere. So much so that spectacles now compete for our limited gaze. There's huge competition to grab, grab as many eyes as possible, and that means the politicians' tweets get more insane, the pranks get more insane, the trick shots get more insane, the CGI effects get more immersive, on and on it goes, because there's competition for our gaze. Spectacles spawn new spectacles. Uh, the movie industry spawns fabricated spectacles on the big screen, uh, which spawns award shows, which are a spectacle of the, themselves, which then spawn 
car red carpet fashion shows, which is like a subspectacle within that, which then spawns these micro moments when an actor slaps a comedian on stage, which becomes a sub-subspectacle of its own. So it's all this huge industry of spectacle making with these sub-spectacles built into it all the way down. Spectacle industries spawn subspectacles, and multiple spectacle, spectacle industries can come together too. Uh, that's basically where the modern day Super Bowl is for us, right? The sports industry comes together, and Hollywood comes together, and the TV industry comes together, and the music industry comes together, and the ad making spectacle makers come together, and they create this huge feast of spectacles that we call the Super Bowl. Now, especially on the entertainment side of this conversation, it can seem like just a bunch of harmless fun. Harmless fun. Until we realize that every spectacle, get this, every single spectacle wants something from you. Every spectacle wants something from you. Every spectacle makes demands on us. Images provoke something in us in order to extract something from us. New spectacles ask for all sorts of things, for our time, for our attention, for our outrage, for our lust, for our love, for our hate, for our affection, for our money, and for our votes. Spectacles want something from you. Every picture, every video, every viral tweet brings before us needs, expectations, and desires. They're all asking for something in return. And that's not always a bad thing, but it is always a thing. So as we consume spectacles, we don't just merely ingest them, we are always responding to them. Visual images awaken the motives inside of our own hearts. Images tug the strings of our affections, our actions. They want our celebration, our awe, our time, our outrage. They want something from us. Images invoke our consensus, our approval, our buy-in, our respreading power, and of course, our wallets. YouTubers will give you new spectacles in exchange for your views and your likes and your subscribes, right? Netflix flat out wants your most precious commodity, your time. Netflix has stated intentionally as a corporate design what they're after is to get you to sleep less. Politicians want our votes. The gaming industry wants our money. And so from each of them come a vast array of eye-grabbing spectacles, each demanding something from us. Many of us know how this dynamic works. And from the inside, we make our own spectacles online in social media, right? Little spectacles that we hope will grab some attention. In them, we implicitly want to be <clears throat> celebrated, we want to be hearted, we want to be liked, shared, retweeted. We are hoping for something in return. Every spectacle in the world implicitly comes to us packaged with a scripted set of responses for us to choose from. And in every spectacle that we make, we're making that assumption about our audience as well. Attention is the currency of power. Attention is the currency of power. The autocrat who cannot control the media before the attention of his subjects will not remain in power very long. 
For us, the more plays or likes you give something, the more it grows in influence. The most attention we give to something becomes a viral spectacle, something so powerful you have to see it. Right? You have to see it. That's why it's gone viral. It's now everybody's seeing this. You've got to see this, right? So the attention market exists because we feed it. We make things viral. We're part of this. And that is because we keep giving spectacles what they want. We keep giving them our attention. It becomes an addicting cycle that seems to be nearly impossible to break. So how does God respond to this world of spectacles? That's the question we are at this morning. And how should we respond? Because it would be very easy at this point to simply retreat to a position that's simply anti-spectacle. Let's just be done with it. Throw the smartphone in a lake. Right? Trash the TV, sledgehammer the Xbox, live a spectacle-free existence, and yet that's exactly not how God confronts our digital world. He does something entirely different. And that's what I want you to see this morning. So this morning, I want to ask, why would war, documented by the minute on TikTok, prove insufficient to fill our attention? In other words, why do we have attention in the first place? What's it for, and how do we know if we are wasting it? Because God gives us clear answers to those questions. For that, we're going to look at three different texts. We're going to look at them fairly briefly, so we'll be moving uh, fairly quickly. We're going to begin in Colossians chapter 3. Open up in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 if you have them, or uh, flip there if you have it on the screen. No condemnation. That's, I'm using a screen for my Bible too. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to jump right into the answers and find that the, the question is not so much what is human attention for, but for whom is attention for? That really becomes the key answer that we see in the New Testament. Who is attention for? Christ is to be the center of our attention, right? And here's how the apostle puts it in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, that's the, the conditional statement, the, an inner man that has been resurrected from the dead, if that's happened to you, if you've been regenerated, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So our, our hearts, our spiritual affections, once dead, now made alive, those reborn affections are now magnetized to lock on the resurrected and ascended Christ. This is not natural. This is not automatic. This is supernatural grace calling for life discipline. We work at this. This is a discipline we cultivate daily as we look beyond what this world has to offer. Or to say it another way, to remain dead in sin is to remain trapped entirely within the visible world around you. To remain dead in sin is to remain trapped entirely within the visible world around you. 
So this becomes the root concern with digital habits. It's not simply a battle over TikTok or Instagram or Snapchat or Netflix or Marvel or Disney or the iPhone or the Xbox. And it's, it's bigger than our very legitimate concerns over lurid images, videos, movies, and gaming. The battle is not merely over the sinfulness of the world spectacle industry. It's a battle over media saturation. This becomes key in the New Testament. Even with otherwise wholesome and good entertainment, By the sheer volume of new media in our lives, even virtuous media, Christ simply grows more and more distant from our attention and thus does not hold our affection. So we know that our attention is to be riveted and fastened above where Christ is. But can we now answer the question, why? We need to press into a couple other questions. And the first one is why? Why focus our attention so resolutely on Christ? For that, we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. I love Hebrews chapter 1. This is a, one of the great chapters in the Bible on the supremacy of Christ. And we're just going to dive into verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he, Christ, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited, inherited is more excellent than theirs. First four verses of Hebrews, amazing. It's a glorious text about Christ. Christ is the radiance of God's glory. Christ is radiantly beautiful as the eternal Son of God. Christ is radiantly beautiful as the one who created everything that you see. Christ is radiantly beautiful as the one who sustains everything that you see, including you. Christ is doing that right now. He's sustaining us. Christ is radiantly beautiful as the crucified and resurrected Son of God, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Christ is radiantly beautiful as the King over all things. Christ is king over all. Christ is superior to the prophets of old, and he's supreme over all the angelic beings in heaven right now. Christ is superior. Christ is radiant beauty personified. That's what we see in those first four verses in Hebrews. Now, with those glories in mind, now go to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, okay? This therefore is following out of the glories of chapter 1. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 1. This is the logical conclusion of Christ's radiant beauty and supremacy in, the, in chapter one. It follows on this word, therefore. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. 
If you draw in your Bibles, you can circle those phrases, much closer attention and drift away. Those are key texts. We are right into attention here and perhaps the most important text in all the Bible for Christians who live in the age of digital media. Hebrews 2.1, memorize this verse. This is a warning. Don't drift away from what you have heard with your ears. This is a sailing metaphor. It tells us the importance of holding a boat's course fixed on a point uh, to avoid being pulled off course and drifting downstream, drifting away. Drifting away from Christ is no hypothetical. It's not hypothetical. This is the age of deconstruction, right? I'm of the age now that I have friends who have drifted away from the gospel, who have drifted away from Christ. I'm sure you have friends that have experienced that same thing. You've watched it. Some of my friends were pastors, some of them very good pastors. My own pastors have drifted away from Christ over the years. Over time, slowly drifting away from Christ. This is happening every single day. Professing Christians drifting away from Christ. A relationship to Jesus Christ is a living and a breathing thing, isn't it? It's not automatic. It's not automatic. You don't just stay a Christian. God perseveres us, yes, amen, but he uses means to do that, right? And those ongoing means have everything to do with how we steward our attention. So we must, we must. That's not me saying that, that we must. That's in the writer of Hebrews. He's saying that we must. No suggestion, no hint. This is a clear demand from the writer of Hebrews. We must pay much closer attention to Christ. Why? Because the affectional drift, the heart drift, away from the beauty of Christ that we saw in in Hebrews chapter one happens through attentional negligence when we no longer focus on Christ. Only the Christ of Hebrews chapter one can be this most brilliant spectacle for us. And when our attention neglects Christ, we will drift away from him. That's the warning, and that's the point of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. And this drift is felt most clearly when we find ourselves always seeking after a new thrill in our media, meanwhile losing interest in the person of Christ, watching our interest in the Bible decline as we coldly mouth the words to Christ-centered hymns and yawn through Christ-centered sermons and spiritually snooze through the Lord's table. Those are warning signs of spiritual drift. And the writer of Hebrews says, beware, beware. So affectional drift away from Christ's beauty in our hearts is linked to attentional drift away from Christ. We simply lose our focus off him. Hearts languish when we forget what we've heard. And this is hardly new in the digital age. This is something that's been happening for millennia. So from one angle, the age of digital spectacles is all about wealth and advertising and coercion and social media popularity and likes and shares and retweets and grabbing more and more of our attention. But even more problematic, the digital spectacles do something worse. They teach us to ignore Christ. And therein is the problem. They make us bored with Christ. And there's no greater catastrophic loss imaginable to the soul than to grow weary of Jesus Christ and his glories, the spectacle of all spectacles. The spectacle for which everything else exists. 
to demonstrate his majesty. And I fear that this catastrophe is only amplified in the media age like ours that inundates us 24 7 365 with new digital spectacles we give our attention to lesser things that are insufficient to sustain our souls so we're on the verge of a conclusion here in this message but finally one more text we have to add one more text in in here because i think this third one is the most persuasive at actually answering our question yes we are to rivet our focus on Christ, but why? Why do we focus on Christ so intently? That brings us finally to Mark chapter nine. We're gonna go to the gospels for that. Mark chapter nine in your Bibles. Mark chapter nine is a transfiguration text, one of these incredible moments when Christ's radiant beauty shines out in physical glory. These are very rare moments. These are very rare spectacles for the eye, but they do happen in the gospels, and one of them is uh, shown to us in Mark chapter 9, verse 2, is where we'll start. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. (laughs) They didn't know what to do or say. I mean, here's, you know, Moses who died, and here's Elijah who, you know, went to heaven, and like they're standing there talking with Jesus, and Jesus is glowing from the inside out. He has no shadow, and they're just frightened. I mean, they don't know what to say. Like, let's make this permanent. Let's set up some houses here and make this, make this thing permanent. And uh, it's just an amazing moment. But pay attention to this spectacle because Elijah and Moses, these are two Old Testament figures, right? They're long off the scene. They materialize out of nowhere and appear in order to engage in casual conversation with Christ who is now glowing brighter than if his white robe was bleached by oxyclean. Okay, this is white, white. It's glowing like the sun, an incredible radiant spectacle for the eye. It's a rare moment in the gospels, but it is a spectacle for the eye. Peter is frightened and he bumbles out. Let's set up shop and make this arrangement permanent right? This, there's something inside of us that loves glory. Like we love to be around glory. This is why people circle celebrities. This is why people want to get close to famous athletes. Uh, we want to be close to glory. And Peter's just demonstrating that in, a, in a, a grander sense. But in this case, we see a rare spectacle of Christ's manifest glory for the eye, but it's temporary. It's not normative, not yet, not in the age of the year. It's not, not normative. But get what happens next in verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Snap. Spectacle ends. They no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. In Mark 9-7, in the context of this radiant Christ, the Father must speak. He speaks out to say this. Listen carefully to him. Pay attention to him. Hone your ears to him. Why? 
Why listen so carefully to this man, Jesus Christ? Because he is the one I love. He is the one I treasure more than anyone or anything else in the universe. God's command to listen is rooted in the substance of who this Christ is in his utter unique worthiness testified by God's own attention and affection. This thunderous word from the heavens spoken by the Father, spoken over the word, over Jesus, is spoken into the clamor of the world's attention market. This is God's beloved son. This is the one who is most majestically beautiful. This is the one who captures God's attention. This is the one who captures his heart. Listen to him. And so we're back to Hebrews 1. This transfigured Christ is the radiance of God's glory. Christ is radiantly beautiful as the sun, as the creator of all things, as the sustainer of all things, as the lamb of God who takes away sin. This Christ is supreme over the prophets of old and all the angelic beings in heaven right now. Now God himself stamps his approval on all this. He affirms all this verbally over Christ. We are here witnessing the object of God's self-delight for the first time in Christ. The son was always the object of God's self-delight. Or to say it theologically, when it comes down to God's delight, his own happiness, his happiness is antecedently fulfilled in himself. God's happiness is antecedently fulfilled in himself, in his son. God was not waiting for creation to exist before he was made happy. That's profound. That'll take you a lifetime to wrestle with that. It's like, okay, then what did he create? What are we here for? Yeah, it's amazing how that unfolds in your mind over the years as you, as you wrestle with that and think through that. In Hebrews chapter 2, 1, and now especially in Mark 9, 7, we have an answer to our question. What is human attention for? Answer, riveting our intense lifelong attention on Christ is warranted by his supremacy. He's worth it. He's worth it. Christ's substance is weightier than everything else competing for our attention. He is the object of divine delight. He is the one in whom the Father delights. And only a fool would ignore him for lesser things. Sobering. So what do we do with this? Here's four practical steps to take away from this study. First, we must get honest with our own susceptibilities, our vulnerabilities to the world's spectacles. We must get honest with our own susceptibilities to the world's spectacles. All of us face these challenges. All of us do. We need to lead from within the fight that we face ourselves. The Bible speaks honestly of us when it says in Proverbs 27:20, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. Another good text to, to memorize, Proverbs 27:20. Sheol is an open mouth. It is always consuming life, day and night. It's like a masquerade, never filled up. That's what our eyes are. Our eyes are insatiable things. Always roving, never fully satisfied by anything this world has to offer, not even with war news. 
as what C.S. Lewis was talking about, which means, again, our great enemy is not the seduction of our spectacle makers. Our great enemy is our own insatiable eye lust. My own eyes, your own eyes, that's the fundamental problem we're getting at. Where our eyes go, so goes our heart. Where our eyes go, so goes our heart. And where our heart goes, that's where our eyes go. The two are connected. Attention and affection are linked together. So if you glut yourself on the spectacles of this world, your heart will drift away from Christ. We all must get honest with that reality inside of us. No one here in this room is exempt. Second, we need to apply the concept of fasting to the buffet of digital media. I'm talking here of a digital detox, getting away from our phones and streaming services for a whole week or more. Yes, you can do that and survive. I promise you, you can. Uh, these practices are how we say to the world, the endless cascade of digital spectacles on my phone is not my God. It's not my God. It's not where I find my satisfaction. And the praise I get in social media, it's not the source of my happiness either. God alone is who I look to for my soul to be satisfied. A digital detox is how we can say this. One way we can say this. We can uh, take a withdrawal from the power currency of the world. This is how power works. It's a, attention and power are connected, right? And so fasting is how Christians say, food is not my God. Food is not my God. Food is not my comfort. Food is not the basis of my happiness. God is. That's what fasting is for, right? We use food rightly when God is at the center of our lives and not food. Food is a powerful habit, and so is our phone, right? Phones are very powerful habits. Every day we habitually turn to our phones more often than we turn to sugar. Smartphones are a virtual candy bowl. And so a digital detox is my way of saying the endless spectacles of digital media available to me on my phone are not my God. The self-affirmation acceptance that I seek in social media is not the basis of my happiness. God's acceptance, is, God's acceptance of me in union to his son, Jesus Christ, is the basis of my happiness, and it always will be that way. Only when our lives are recentered on God can we learn to use our phones in an honorable way and with eternal purpose. Many movies and videos and games and apps are wonderful gifts from God to be embraced, to be used wisely. But like all fasting, a digital detox is sanctified gratitude. Sanctified gratitude. One way to ensure that our lives center on the gift giver, not on the gifts he's given us. That's the key to fasting. Third, we need to search our hearts. We need to search our hearts. What drives you? What grabs your attention? Especially in the book of Hebrews, fixing our attention and our affections on Christ become one of the grandest callings of the local church. Uh, it's a collective work for all of us. I'm called to be aware of your affection for Christ. You're called to be aware of that in others around you. This is why we have student ministry. This is why we have church. This is why we have a body, a local church. Together, we refuse to allow one another to drift. And in the midst of an age that will grab your eyes and your attention in a thousand ways, we are brothers and sisters, each keeping one another fixed in our minds and our hearts on Christ. So when we come together and we sing together and we're led in these awesome worship songs, that's a way of helping serve one another from the stage and from out there, from your singing and from their playing 
And all of it together, we're, we're helping serve one another to, to realize what's truly significant and important in this world, in this age of spectacles. We need to evaluate the spiritual impact of digital media on ourselves. And to that end, here are eight diagnostic questions that you can take home and meditate on in your own free time. Eight diagnostic questions. Number one, how much of my media is for escape? And what am I escaping? How much of my media is for escape? And what am I escaping? Number two, does my screen time leave me more recharged or more depleted? Does my screen time leave me more recharged or more depleted? Number three, is my media diet enriching my time with Christ or eroding it? Is my media diet enriching my time with Christ or eroding it? Number four, how consistent is my personal devotional life? How consistent is my personal devotional life? Number five, what does my prayer life look like? What does my prayer life look like? Number six, is my communion with God drab and boring, or is it alive? Is my communion with God drab and boring, or is it alive? Number seven, how do Christ-centered sermons and songs land on me, and what does this say about the affectional health I bring with me on Sunday? How do Christ-centered sermons and songs land on me, and what does this say about the affectional health I bring with me on Sunday? Number eight, are my digital desires serving my God-given duties or are they distracting me from them? Are my digital desires serving my God-given duties or are they distracting me from them? These questions are meant to put our media diet and our spiritual affections in the same conversation because they belong there in the same conversation. You're not going to glut yourself all week on media and then show up on Sunday and have a heart that's ready to worship. Okay, you can't drift all week away from Christ and be ready to worship him on Sunday morning. So these are the kind of questions you need to ask your own self. Okay? And there are a lot of complicating factors. <laughs> if you find communion with God hard, it might not just be the media. It might be a host of other things, physiological, workouts, diet, sleep, how much homework you have. Like all, that, all that stuff kind of comes into play. But we cannot separate our digital diets from our spiritual health. We can't separate that. That's, that's got to be one conversation. Our attention drift will show up in these eight areas. The effects of our media diet will show up in honest answers, if we're willing to give honest answers to those questions. Fourth and finally, we preach Christ in him crucified. We preach Christ in him crucified. Faithful pastors preach Jesus Christ in the age of spectacle-seeking. The Apostle Paul does this very thing in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. If you're headed into ministry or you want to go into ministry and preach, Galatians 3.1 is another one of those amazing texts for the attention economy that you want to memorize. Galatians 3.1, this is a letter from Paul to a church that's drifting away from the gospel. Okay, this church in Galatia is drifting away from the gospel. 
And Paul warns them sternly with a warning about their drifting attention. He writes this, quote, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul chides this church, and this is so weird, because it's very unlikely that anyone in Galatia saw Christ hanging on the cross. Historically and geographically, that's nearly impossible. The crucifixion happened 20 years earlier in a city a thousand miles away from Galatia, and there's no video of it, right? So nobody, nobody in Galatia saw Christ hang on the cross, and yet he says in chapter three, verse one, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. 20 years earlier, a thousand miles away. That would be like me saying, do you remember what happened at the intersection uh, in Vancouver on April 2nd, 2002, at Granville Street and 41st Avenue. And you'd be like, huh? No, nobody knows. I don't even know if there's any no, anything noteworthy happened there. But that's essentially it, 20 years ago and 1,000 miles away. You remember what happened there? No. Nobody knows what happened at the intersection in Vancouver 20 years ago. So what on earth does Paul mean here when he says to this church, you all saw Christ publicly portrayed as crucified as like the day he was crucified on a cross. You saw it, Galatia, you saw him. You saw him hanging on the cross. It's plain as a billboard in the middle of Galatia. What? It seems that Paul here is making this claim. His own preaching of the cross, his own preaching of the gospel was so clear and so vibrant that it was as if the crucifixion was portrayed in Galatia as openly and prominently as if it was on a billboard. That's what preaching Christ represents for a city. When Paul preached Christ in Galatia, he was bringing the public spectacle of Christ back. This is what the pulpit represents. You can preach Christ in such a way that the death of Christ 2,000 years ago and 8,000, 2,000 years ago and 8,000 miles away from Simi Valley is projected back before the citizens of Simi Valley right here. That's what gospel preaching represents. Preaching Christ is a rerun of the spectacle of the cross, bringing it near to audiences as if Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified right here in this city. Wow. That cross, that spectacular cross relevant across time and space, do not drift away from it. Don't drift away from the greatest spectacle the world has ever beheld. And so by design, divine design, Christians are pro-spectacle, okay? We give our entire lives to re-preach this greatest spectacle, this infinite object big enough to satisfy our vast attention appetite. But it's a spectacle for the year. It's a spectacle for the year. And that's where the greatest tension arises for our age and the age of the spectacle, which is all made for the eye. So when Lewis said, quote, the war will fail to absorb our, our whole attention because war is a finite object and therefore unfitted to support the whole attention of a human soul, what did he mean? He means that there's a lot of things trying to get our attention. Some of them important. Get war, date, war updates if you're into that. Get the war updates and see what's going on. But as you do, do not let the greatness of Jesus Christ be lost on your attention. 
This is one of the greatest threats to Christians in the digital age, in peacetime and in wartime. It's easy as giving our eyes over to endless feasts of the attention merchants. All our delight in Christ will deplete and deteriorate if we lose sight of him. We will drift, and that drift away from Christ for digital thrills or even for constant war updates is completely insufficient to sustain the human soul. It won't work. In all of this, we proceed in faith, knowing that digital minimalism won't save me. A new life hack, a new life hack app isn't going to save me. A digital detox is not going to save me. Throwing my smartphone into the river is not going to save me. Sledgehammering my Xbox will not save me. And tossing my television in the garbage will not save me. Switching to a dumb phone will not save me. Any of those drastic actions might help me. They might be helpful for you. But my ultimate hope rests in a spectacle, the most satisfying spectacle of the entire universe, the universe he created, Jesus Christ, the only one, the only one who can satisfy my attention. A spectacle for the ear now, a spectacle for the ear now, and a spectacle for the eye one day. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these moments together, looking at your word briefly. Lord, make this true of us right now. Capture us by your son, Christ. We live inside Vanity Fair, and this playground of digital amusements has never been more addictive and eye-grabbing and time-consuming and affection-dulling. Save us from wasting our lives by giving our precious attention to what ignores you. So Lord, we pray, capture us. Capture us. We don't trust in ourselves here. We're not confident in our own powers to delight in eternal things. Do this work inside of us and the new life that you give us uh, and in the reborn affections inside us. Rivet our gaze, rivet our hearts on Christ. And may we begin each of our days like the psalmist said who, who prayed, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we might rejoice and be glad all of our days. But that's our daily prayer. Satisfy me today that I might live today in your joy. Because if you won't answer this prayer, what hope do we have to resist the attention economy around us? We need you, especially in this media age for the eye. Capture us, capture our ears of faith. Hold us fast, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, our steady anchor within the veil. Amen.